Lord be with you. Well, that was pretty weak. I got to be honest with you as we're getting ready to start. I said, the Lord be with you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. If he's not, we're all in trouble. So let's put it that way. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are in Romans chapter 8. Several of you came up to me over the course of the week and said, oh, we're so glad to be in Romans chapter 8 after this long slog through the first seven chapters of this epistle, and that is true. Romans chapter 8 is like a breath of fresh air after a very, very difficult slog through some very difficult chapters. But as Paul is going to make clear, we really can't appreciate the good news, which is what the gospel is all about, until we understand the bad news, our condition prior to Jesus Christ coming and paying the price for our sins. So here we are in Romans chapter 8. Last week we took a sort of an overall look at this eighth chapter, a sort of just a, an outline of exactly what Paul is going to be talking about. And now we're going to go back and sort of take it apart piece by piece. And we're going to look at these opening chapters again, these opening verses rather of chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 8, and let's go ahead and read through about the first eight verses, if you will. Paul writes this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Of course, the main theme of this chapter is stated right there in the very first verse, that there is therefore now no condemnation. If you're going to highlight any words in this eighth chapter... Let it be those two words, no condemnation, because that's really the theme. It's not only the theme of this chapter, truth be known, it is the theme of this epistle. It's what the epistle to the Romans is really all about. And one would go so far as to say it really is the theme of the Word of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul calls the gospel. Now, I don't know if you're aware of what that word gospel means. You know, on Sunday, we have readings from various portions of the Scripture. We talk, for example, about a reading from the Old Testament. Uh, we have a reading from the New Testament. Oftentimes, that's an epistle, one of Paul's epistles, or Peter's, or James. And then we have a reading from the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
the gospel is those, those four books in the New Testament that are basically biographies of the life of Jesus. But that's not how Paul uses the term gospel here. Paul uses this in a much broader sense. Actually, the word gospel is the Greek word evangelion, from which we get the term evangelistic or evangelism or evangelical. And the word literally means good news or glad tidings. So, for example, when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the fields at the time of the Lord's birth, that we are told that they said, Fear not, for we bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Well, the word that is translated there is glad tidings. Don't be afraid, we bring you glad tidings of great joy. It's the word evangelion. It means good news, glad tidings. And that's what Paul is saying. This is the good news. The good news that is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, that there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation, he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you something. Paul got excited about this message. He devoted his entire life to the gospel, to these glad tidings, this good news of salvation for the world. He not only dedicated his entire life to it, Paul suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. He felt that it was something worthy of suffering for and indeed, as we all know, dying for. Paul, according to the most reliable tradition, would be executed in Rome by order of the emperor Nero, brought out along the Ostian Way and beheaded because he believed in the gospel, the good news. And you'll see that this is what he's been talking about all through the epistle to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the gospel being the power of God unto salvation. It's a message of salvation, but it also demonstrates what he says, the power of Almighty God. In Romans chapter 3, he says, A righteousness apart from the law has been made known. And that righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul calls it there the gospel, the good news. In Romans chapter 5, he talks about us being justified by the blood of Christ so that now we who were once at enmity with God can have peace with God. And he said that's the good news, that's the gospel. And then in Romans chapter 5, he says, where sin increased, and we can see that not only in our own lives, but we see that in our culture, in our world today, we can see sin increasing evermore. Paul says, nevertheless, wherever sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. And he says, this is good news. The gospel. It was exciting to Paul. Is it, as, is it as exciting for us? That's a question worth asking. You know, we sing on Sunday in church, obviously with great gusto, the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I remember going years ago to the Edinburgh Military Tattoo, which takes place um, every summer at Edinburgh Castle uh, in Scotland. 
And it's a magnificent thing. If you ever get an opportunity to go and see the Edinburgh military tattoo, you need to go and do it. it it's an extraordinary thing. It's worth the price of admission itself just to go there to see that. But I remember seeing all of these magnificent military groups, the massed pipes and the bands and all the military, you know, nobody does it like the British. I mean, there's pomp and ceremony like you've never seen before. It all starts out, just to give you this idea, it all starts out with somebody on the announcing, uh, on the PA system, the public address system, coming on and saying, the word of the hour. And all of a sudden you hear this whir of bagpipes and you see this drawbridge come down. You're on the parade ground. And all of a sudden, hundreds of bagpipes come out, blasting out Scotland the Brave. Just makes you want to get up and fight somebody, you know, because that's what, that's what bagpipes do. Just, just boils the blood. And you go through this whole two-hour presentation. It's magnificent. But the first time I ever saw it, it ended with one lone piper way up there on the parapet playing Amazing Grace. And let me tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. We love that hymn, don't we? But let me ask you, is grace really amazing to you? Is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, really amazing to you? Some years ago, Philip Yancey, I think it was, wrote a book entitled Amazing Grace or Boring Grace. Because if you think about it, we really don't get as excited about the gospel, what Paul is talking about here, the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't get as excited about it as he did, do we? We, we have become so familiar with it that there is a sense in which we have even domesticated the gospel. Why is it that we don't get as excited about this? You know, this was a subject about which Paul could not stop talking. Did you ever meet somebody that always talks about the same thing? That they're so excited about a subject that they cannot help but talk about it? I've said before, you sometimes see bumper stickers where people say, let me tell you about my grandchildren. And they love to talk about their grandchildren. You know, you always get one of those Christmas letters where everybody talks about their family and their accomplishments and what their children are doing, and you sit there and read it, and you think, well, boy, don't I look like a fool. My family hasn't done any of that. You know, we love to talk about certain things. People will talk about their golf games, for example. You get a hole-in-one and you're an avid golfer, everybody is going to hear about it, whether they want to or not. Whether they care or not, you're going to, why? Because it's exciting to you. Paul could not suppress himself when it came to talking about the gospel. Why isn't that the case with us? I mean, obviously, if what Paul is saying is true, then this is the most important message in the world. There's, there's nothing that you and I can talk about that would be more important than this if what Paul is saying is true. So why is it that the gospel doesn't thrill us in the way that it thrilled the Apostle Paul? Well, let me suggest to you a couple of reasons. One reason is found in Luke chapter 7. So you'll want to turn there. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 7, let me say one reason why I think 
the gospel is not as exciting for us as it was for Paul. And one reason is because we're so familiar with it. There is the old expression that says, familiarity breeds contempt. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily the case when it comes to the message of the gospel, but I do think that sometimes familiarity breeds apathy. This is very often the case when it comes to celebrations like Christmas. Christmas is a hard feast day to preach. I'm going to be honest with you. Because on the one hand, you've got people who are dedicated Christians who come week after week, and they're coming there, and they want something, and you've got to give them some meat. On the other hand, you've got a lot of people who come on Christmas Eve, and you're not going to see them again until when? Easter. Easter, that's right. And so to get really deep on the subject, well, it's going to be very difficult because they really don't know the story. Or they think they do. They've heard it so often, so many times. They know what's coming next in the narrative. And this is what I mean when I say we've domesticated the gospel. We think we know it. We think we've heard it so often that it just doesn't excite us in the way that it excited the Apostle Paul. That's one reason. But here's the other reason why I don't think the gospel excites us as much as it excited the Apostle Paul. And this is going to sting a little bit, but I think it's an accurate appraisal of the situation. It's Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. I don't think I need to elaborate. I think you've got an idea of what that's going on there. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, the one from whom no secrets are hid, answers him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose, I love that, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now there it is. Those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven little love little. The reason the Apostle Paul was so thrilled with the idea of the gospel, this idea that there was no condemnation in Christ Jesus, is because Paul, as he looked back over the course of his life, realized that is exactly what he deserved. What he deserved was condemnation. Let me ask you a question, and don't answer out loud, don't raise your hand. Just ask yourself, as you look back over the course of your life, do you see yourself as a pretty good person? And when I say good, I'm not talking about good by the standards of the world. The world's standards are ever-shifting, ever-changing, as we well know. I'm talking about, do you see yourself as a good person that God ought to love? See, Paul once thought, as a Pharisee, that he was a good man. But on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden, he saw himself for what he really was. Not necessarily bad by the standards of the world, but certainly not measuring up to God's standard. You know, Jesus says, if you want to get into heaven by your own merit, fine. But this is how good you have to be. How good do you have to be in order to get into heaven? What's a passing grade? Boy, you're well-trained. Who taught you people? That's absolutely right. God does a grade on the curve. It's not a question of being, you know, getting, getting an 80 or an 85 or, or even a 90 or a 95. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Even the slightest amount of sin in your life, you see, is corrupting. And so Paul saw himself as he really was on that road to Damascus, a man who claimed to be serving God, but in fact was working against God, a man who was going out and systematically dismantling the church, taking men, women, and children back to Jerusalem to have them executed, to jail them. And all of a sudden he saw himself as he really was and he realized that what he deserved was condemnation and what he received instead was pardon. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, Paul thought. He's freed me from my burden. Well, that is exactly what this is all about. About. There are four words here that we need to note right here at the beginning of this chapter, and they're all significant. The first word, of course, is condemnation. There is no condemnation. That word condemnation implies both the sentencing and the execution of the sentence. We're not only declared guilty, but as Paul pointed out in Romans chapter 1, we're also under judgment. We're not only accused, we've been found guilty, and the sentence has been handed down, and the sentence is this, death, the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. So that's the first word, condemnation. That's what we are all under. We have been accused, we have been found guilty, 
and we have been condemned. But Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There will not be a carrying out of the sentence. You know, sometimes, and you've heard me say this before, people say, all I want from God is what I deserve. Let me say this much to you. That is the one thing you do not want from God. You do not want what you deserve. You want what you don't deserve. On that last day, when Christ comes, as we profess every Sunday, to judge the quick and the dead, do you realize that everybody's going to be judged? All of us. You're not going to escape judgment. What you're going to escape is condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. It doesn't mean there's no judgment to come. There is. He will judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. The difference is the judgment will be in our favor as opposed to being against us. Nobody on the last day is going to get injustice. I want you to know that. You're going to get one of two things from God. You're either going to get what you deserve, or you're going to get what you do not deserve. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will not get what you deserve. Why? Because the punishment has already been meted out on another. So that's the first word, condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. You may have been accused. You may have been found guilty, but there will be no execution because the price has been paid. Second word to note is the word now. It's interesting that Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation. He doesn't say there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He adds the word now. What does that mean? Because he wants to remind us that there had been condemnation. Our status has changed. Our circumstances have changed. Our situation has changed. We were once under judgment. We were once under condemnation. But now the status has changed. We are not what we once were. We are not what we once were. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn, if you will, to Ephesians. Another one of Paul's great letters. Now, Paul is writing, as you know, in his letter to the Ephesians, to Gentile Christians. And he reminds them of what they once were and what they are now. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. Paul writes, therefore, remember. That's an important word to remember. If we remember our sins, if we remember the things that we've done of which we are ashamed, then we can rejoice in the gospel. So Paul brings to their remembrance, these Ephesian Christians, what they once were. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time, and he says a number of things here, one, separated from Christ. Two, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Three, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Fourth, you had no hope. And fifth, you were without God in the world. Now, Paul's writing, as I said, to Gentiles. That's us. It's as if Paul is saying, therefore, remember, Jeff Miller, at one time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That is to say, the company of saints. You were strangers to the word of God, to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, at least no lasting hope, maybe hope for tomorrow, but no hope for eternity. You were without God in the world. But then there are these two glorious words. But now. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is to say alienated, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is what you were. This is you, what you are now. So Paul, going back to Romans, says there is therefore now no condemnation. There was, but there isn't anymore. And it's interesting. He says there is therefore now no condemnation. You know, one of the things about Paul is that Paul will continue to hammer on a point until you get it. Some might say it's redundancy, but actually it's a very effective teaching device. Any of you who have been teachers know that if you want your students to understand what you're trying to convey to them, you have to tell them. And you have to keep telling them over and over again until they get it. Keep your finger there in Romans and, and turn again to Ephesians for just a minute, to, to Ephesians chapter 2, but verse 1, and you'll get an idea of how Paul does this. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what you were. But now, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now here comes what we would say is the redundancy, the, the repeating of this, for it is by grace that you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Now, it's the second time he said that. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. You hear how Paul keeps repeating it in a slightly different way? You're saved by grace. Not by works, you understand. 
but by grace. This is not your own doing, by the way. It is the gift of God. Are you hearing me? It's not the result of works. See how Paul keeps repeating it, repeating it, so that he's sure you get it. Well, that's what he's doing back here in Romans. Not to that degree, but it's the same idea. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Any of you like little Irish ditties, Irish songs? Some of you may have. Uh, if you go down there to Tommy Condon's, and you go early in the night, you go later in the night, it gets a little crazy. But if you go earlier in the night, you can listen to them sing these Irish ballads. And there's one called The Wild Rover. How many of you know that song, The Wild Rover? Some of you do, okay. Well, it's about a young man who has wasted his life on drink and dance and song and so forth. And he basically comes to the end of himself and he realizes he can't live like this anymore. And so he's going to give up this life of dissipation. And there's this chorus that sings, And I'll never, no, never, no, never, no more, be the wild rover. So I say, never, nay, never, no, never, no more shall I be the wild rover. Nay, never, no more. There's a sense in which that is what Paul is saying. There is no condemnation. Nay, never. No, never. No, never, no more. Will there be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? So condemnation, now, no. And here is perhaps the most important word next to condemnation, therefore. Now, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, but it's not condemnation because God has overlooked our sin. It's not that there's no condemnation because God has decided to just turn the other way. There is no condemnation, therefore, because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf. Because Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sin and mine. No condemnation because of what God and God alone has done. What do you and I contribute to the process of our salvation? Former Archbishop of Canterbury got it right. He said, nothing but the sin from which we need to be redeemed. That's it. You'll notice here that Paul says there are two classes of people in the world. You may think it's the haves and the have-nots, but that's not the way Paul puts it. Paul says there are two classes of people in the world. There are those who are in Christ Jesus, and there are those who are not in Christ. Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus, not condemned. Those who are not in Christ Jesus are condemned. Those who are in union with Christ, those who have a relationship with Christ, they have passed from death to life. They have passed from judgment to fellowship. But those who are not in Christ Jesus, well, he says, they stand condemned already. It's not as though on the last day they're going to get injustice. No, God's going to give them exactly what they deserve. 
But every single person on the planet, Paul is saying, is in one of those two categories. Every single person in this room is in one of those two categories. You're either in Christ Jesus and have passed from death to life, or you are not in Christ Jesus, in which case you have been accused, you have been found guilty, and the punishment will be meted out. The punishment is death, for the wages of sin is death. Now here's the question. How do you move from category two to category one? That's the great question, isn't it? How do I move from category two, from not being in Christ Jesus, to being in Christ Jesus? Well, it doesn't happen by anything that we do. Uh, there is a somewhat serious textual problem here. Does anybody have a King James Version of the Bible? I meant to bring my King James Version with me. Anybody. Somebody's got to have a King James Version out there. It should say King James Version on your spine. You've got it on the phone. Well, fantastic. Um, so, thank God for technology. All right. Well, go ahead, if you will, and read through, Foster, if you don't mind, the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. And listen carefully to what... The, maybe I can pull it up and announce it for you. Okay, let me just see. I meant to bring my King James Version with me, but I can do it. And you'll see that there's a serious textual problem here that I want to address. If they get it right. Okay. So this is what the King James Version says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you're reading your own version, let me read that again, and you'll notice that there's something different. The King James Version has something that your other versions do not. This is the King James. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What's in that King James Version that's not in your version? It is the second part of the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And modern versions go, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. But the King James says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. What's, why is there a difference? I know everybody loves the King James version of the Bible. Many people think that's the version that Jesus himself read. But I want you to understand the King James Version, as wonderful as it is, it's a fine version. It is not the most accurate version that we have. I can. And that addition is what scholars call a gloss. It's a mistake. It was an addition that found its way into the text. And because the most reliable text that we had at the time of the 16th century had this in it, it found its way into subsequent editions. 
But we now know, because we have more ancient texts, that was not originally a part of what Paul originally wrote. So let me read it again. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Modern versions go immediately to, for the law of the spirit of life. But that's not what the King James Version does. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then it adds this part, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. As if to imply, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus if you, walk after the, if you don't walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. It becomes a work. That's exactly the problem. And it's actually counter to everything that the Apostle Paul is saying in this chapter. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, how in the world did that happen? Well, there have been all kinds of theories as to how it happened. Perhaps the most logical one is that there was a mistake by the scribe who was copying this. You do understand that in previous ages, they did not have word processors. They didn't have typewriters. They didn't have computers. You copied everything by hand. Normally, it was the monks in the Middle Ages who were doing all of this by hand. And it was hard, arduous work. You could just imagine some monk who is working on the manuscript, and he does one of two things. He gets either very tired and he dozes off, wakes up and comes back to his work, and when he does, he skips down to verse 9. Because he's copying. Where verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells within you. It says the same thing at that point. Basically, what he does is he repeats. So probably what happened is he looked down on his text and copied it, but he copied it in the wrong place. And as a consequence, it found its way into subsequent editions of the King James Version of the Bible. But what I want you to understand is that the modern translation is correct. It's based upon the most ancient manuscripts that we have. Paul is not saying there is therefore no condemnation for those who walk according to the Spirit as opposed to the flesh. No, he's saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's all about Jesus. It's not about anything that you and I do. So that's just important because I didn't know if somebody was going to read the King James Version and think, well, this is different from what I find. It's because that is an error. Now, does that mean we cannot trust the Bible? No, it does not mean we can't trust the Bible. It does mean that sometimes we can't trust the medieval scribes. But the good news is that we have so many ancient manuscripts that we're able to compare them. And that's why I say the language of the King James Version is magnificent. That Elizabethan language is just it's magnificent. We love it. But the reality is it is not the most accurate translation of the Bible. So... Read your King James Version. Many of us memorize the King James Version. But when you study the Bible, get a modern translation, you'll be better off. Now, what Paul is talking about here when he talks about no condemnation in Christ Jesus, he wants us to understand that the work of our salvation, it is the work of God. It is the work of God alone. We don't contribute anything to it. And he wants us to understand that when it is the work of God, it is work of the whole Godhead. Your salvation is the work of all three persons of the Trinity. 
God the Father. You do understand as Christians, we believe in one God, but revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We profess this every Sunday in the Creed. We say we believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and the earth. We believe in God the Son, Jesus Christ, our only Lord, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who with the Father and the Son is what? Worshipped and glorified. As Christians, and I understand this is very difficult math, but nevertheless, we believe in one God, but one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are all co-eternal, they are co-equal, and yet they are different. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul says that our salvation is the work of God and God alone, and that means all three persons of the Trinity are engaged in your salvation and mine. How is it that all three persons are engaged? Well, he says, it is God the Father who takes the initiative and does what? Sends the Son in the likeness of human flesh. Now, it's interesting, the likeness of human flesh. Why do I say likeness? Because we're told that while Jesus was fully man, there was one particular area where he was different from us. He was without sin. So he was just like us in every respect except for that. It is God who sends the Son. It is the Son who offers himself upon the cross as the propitiation for our sins. You may recall that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was tested. And he was praying there in the garden and he made a request of the Father. And what was that request? that if this cup of suffering could pass, the Father would allow it to pass. In other words, if there is another way to fulfill the salvation of the world, if there's another way to redeem humanity, men and women, if there's another way to bring them into fellowship with the Godhead, other than this, let it be. And what was the Father's response? the only time the father ever responded to the son in this way, he said, no. No, that is not the agreed plan. And Jesus said, well then, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So it is the father who sends the son in the likeness of man, like us in every respect. We have a great high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Why? Because he's been tempted in every way just as we have been tempted yet without sin. It is God the Son who willingly makes propitiation. That's how John describes it in his first epistle, propitiation for our sins. What does that word propitiation mean? If you're reading the Revised Standard Version and you read 1 John chapter 2, the word is expiation. He makes expiation for our sins. Now, those are two terms that most of us don't use on a regular basis, propitiation, expiation. But they're important words, but they mean two different things. The original word is propitiation, but when the Revised Standard Version was being published, the scholar who was heading up the team was a man by the name of C.H. Dodd. He was at Cambridge University, and he prepared, prepared the word expiation. What's the difference? 
Expiation means a covering. So 1 John says, God sent his son to be an expiation for our sins. That is a covering for our sins. And the reason why Dodd preferred that word as opposed to propitiation is because the word propitiation doesn't mean to cover our sins, which of course is what Jesus' blood does. It covers our transgressions. That is true. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. You remember at the time of the Passover, the blood of the Lamb was placed on the doorpost when the angel of death passed through Egypt. He passed over because he saw the blood. Jesus' blood does cover our sins. But the word is not expiation, it is propitiation. And the reason why Dodd didn't like it is because propitiation means to turn aside wrath. And it was the wrath part that he didn't like. So he chose a different English word, expiation. But the word that is actually used is a propitiation. By his death, Christ turns aside the wrath the judgment of God. And that's an important word, especially as we study Romans, because you'll recall that at the beginning, Paul says that humanity is under what? Wrath. The wrath of God is being poured out against a sinful humanity because we have suppressed the truth. So God the Son makes propitiation for our sins. Here's what God the Holy Spirit does, the third person of the Trinity. He unites us with Christ. We said that the essence of salvation is not getting your ticket punched and going to heaven when you die. The essence of salvation is to be united with Christ forever. I said it's analogous to a marriage. When a young woman goes into a wedding, in to be married, she goes in as Miss So-and-so. But when she comes out, she's united to her husband. The two become one flesh and her status and her name have changed. She becomes Mrs. So-and-so. Well, there is a sense, I said, in which you and I come into a relationship with Jesus Christ as Miss Sinner. But we become united to Christ by faith, and we leave Mrs. Christian. Our status has changed. Our name has changed change. We've been united with Christ. Now, you know when you get married and your status changes, if your husband cheats on your taxes, is that going to affect you? Yes. You better believe it. Because what he does now affects you. What you do now affects him. The same is true with our union with Christ. We have been united with him in his death so the promise is one day we shall be united with him in his resurrection. And because he lives forever and we are united with him, so we shall live forever. Once you pass from condemnation to justification, once you pass from judgment to life, I want you to understand something. When you become united with Christ, when you are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing. This is Paul's whole point here in Romans. There is nothing, nothing at all that can separate you from the love of God. Jesus in John chapter 6 says this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Remember, this is the work of God. What do you and I contribute to the process of our salvation Nothing, nothing but the sin from which we need to be saved. It is the work of God, 
God the Father who sends His Son, the Son who pays the price for our sin, becomes the propitiation for our transgressions, turns aside the wrath of God. It's God the Holy Spirit who unites us to Jesus Christ so that our destiny is linked to His destiny. And that's why Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. You know what that means? That means that once saved, always saved. You can never lose your salvation. Never. No, nay, never, no more. Because your fate is eternally linked to the fate of Jesus Christ who's done it all. And that's what Paul is going to go and unpack here in Romans chapter 8. Now, does that mean we cannot backslide? Does that mean that we will never sin again? Of course we can sin again. But you see, the problem is this. If you can lose your salvation, then let's be honest, it's really not of grace, isn't it? It's really not the work of God. It is your work. What that basically means is you're saved by grace, but you keep it by your works. And Paul says that's not the case. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you come into a personal relationship with him? Do you realize what you once were? And you now want to be a different man, a different woman? And you've placed your trust in him and passed from death to life? If that is the case, there is no condemnation for you. The old hymn got it right. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's good news, folks. And we should be excited about it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this wonderful eighth chapter of Romans. We thank you. That when we are in Christ Jesus, nothing, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, not even we ourselves can separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no condemnation for us anymore. Grant us the grace to see ourselves as we once were, that we can rejoice in the gospel and in what we have now become. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.